2: i've been looking forward to this one for a long time because all of our listeners not in kitchener are going to love the guest on this week's episode because he was the guy that torched their team i say not in kitchener because who the hell knows if anybody in our hometown actually listens to this podcast we put the call out how many weeks ago let us know where you're free, listening free, from. i think i think so and, and the London responses started pouring in. They said, we don't read Payette. We listen to Pope and Farwell. That's exactly what we heard. You heard it here first. Uh, we got Pittsburgh. We heard from somewhere in the Eastern Conference. Was it Kingston? Anyway. And then... Uh, Barry. Bill Peel emailed us. He's from Barry. From Barry. Yeah. That's right. I knew it was somewhere in the East. Sorry, Kingston. We still love you. And then just this week, Mike, the dairy farmer from Hanover. Or is it Hanover? I heard from somebody who hailed from Hanover? They, they said Hanover. We used to have no, a cottage up in Hanover. I think it's Hanover too, right?
0: It is Hanover, yes. I was once a Hanover
2: baron That's, for a couple knew, of seasons, actually. And I knew Hanover. you could help out. Definitely Hanover. Yeah. So Mike, the dairy yeah. farmer from Hanover, thanks for listening. Hey, if you're here, where did you find us? Leave a rating, leave a review, uh, give us some feedback. Send us an email, farwellandpope at gmail.com. Tweet us at underscore chris pope at farwell underscore ohl glad you're enjoying this podcast everywhere except in kitchener
0: i don't know if i've mentioned it on a previous episode or not but we should give credit to joe uh i apologize not knowing how to pronounce your last name uh, but joe emailed us and he listens from pittsburgh pennsylvania boy joey we also had mark who interacts with us often on twitter he emailed us and said hey clowns from drumbo that's all it said (laughs) well drumbo knows it's clowns let me tell you so i I mean he's not wrong i'll say that but uh some people listening from wherever we didn't get many people listening in kitchener maybe they get enough of you on the radio for 12 hours a day and then maybe they get enough of me on broadcast because only just chiming in during the game is enough for to be put over the edge i don't know
2: okay can we just can we just take that back half a step and just recognize that it's not my fault. I I'm sorry. I'm the last person that is available to work at City News 570 in Kitchener. And then when they don't have me on the air, they play repeats of me. Like the worst thing in the world is when we're signing on to a broadcast with a replay of my daily talk show playing before we start our broadcast. I cannot stand it. I don't make those rules. It's not in my contract. I am a diva. I'm not that much of a diva.
0: No, the worst is when we sign on to that broadcast, they're replaying your show from earlier in that week, then you do the Rangers broadcast and a post game show. And then when I'm driving home, I still hear another replay of your show. It is Mike Farwell news 570.
2: Sometimes that happens. I get in the car after the game too. I'm like, who is this clown change the station? A lot of Farwell on city news. It's a lot of Farwell. Is it going to be a lot of games? That's the question that's been discussed on Twitter this week after uh, a Nathan Rebo slam i mean i I don't know like to me this is a pretty damn fine open ice body check it's late it's late but ty Voigt head down admiring a pass he comes over the blue line and nathan rebo the defenseman for the windsor spitfires obliterates him how many games we talking here
0: that's what my tweet said was how many games and there's been a plethora of responses from 10 to none um it is one of those hits that's going to draw a bunch of different opinions in my mind i the the video that i saw and that i tweeted was the replay in slow motion so it's really tough to figure out how late that hit was but even as um a former linesman who we've had on this podcast referee uh he said that you know even in the slow motion it's only one steamboat which I, yeah, he's got a point there. You know, it's not a lot of time, even in the slow motion replay. I love it. It's a hit that we don't see as much in the game anymore. But if you're coming across the offensive blue line with your head down, admiring a pass, a defenseman is going to step up from time to time and knock you into
2: next week. I heard somebody say that Voit should get five games for having his head yeah. down. <laughs> I, and I shouldn't That's, make like we could, we can laugh a little bit because Voit was not injured on the play, fortunately. They brought I, I the stretcher out on the ice. Right. He was not seriously injured. Yeah. Yeah. but He got it, up it, himself. and Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's scary. And th- this is the thing. You know, it actually ties into what we talked about last week. You mentioned, you know, the, the replay that you – or what you tweeted. The video you tweeted was the replay, which is already in slow motion. But this just goes back to what we talked about last week. And I was kind of whizzing all over the offside rules and the, the reviews of offsides. This is how we – Judge the game now, Popper, and and you know that as well as anybody that we we look at things using the available technology to slow it down frame by frame, and that makes it look worse, and that's what's going to be reflected in the final judgment in all of this. I I'm really I'm of two minds because you and I have talked quite a bit during this season, and it started for me. Well, I was going to say last season, but the last season we had a a season in the OHL, so 1920 uh, where. Uh, my my stance on fighting has kind of swung back much closer to the middle i had gone pretty hardcore let's get it out of the game probably you know 5 to 10 years ago and now i've started coming back believing that there really is still a place for it these are you know even at this level two healthy young men deciding they want to scrap and anyway but along with that i've i've really come to appreciate or appreciate anew the the physicality of the game and so I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable looking at a hit like this. And, and you described it. You want to admire a pass coming over the blue line with your head down? You pay a price for that in, in this game that we love so much. And, and that part of me wants to say the price should still exist. But the other part of me recognizes the game that we're playing today, the way we play it, the way we uh, officiate it. And, and I think you add that up on, on that side of the ledger and I'll bet you the lack of injury and the lack of contact to the head might make this as little as eight, but I'm thinking 10 and I hope I'm wrong, but that's what I think.
0: I think you're going to be wrong because of the fact that Rebo didn't concentrate on the head. There was no head contact. It was a, he got penalized a five minute major um, for a blindside hit. I don't think that's a blindside hit. The player was looking the other way where, where he was passing the puck and he came I think the blindside hit is more for like the head checks. And I guess he did come from where Voight wasn't looking. So it could be a blindside, but I think if if they're going to suspend him at all, it will be two games. And I don't even think that's necessary just, just because he did, he could have knocked Ty Voight's head into next week. And he, the way he made the body check, it was all body. He made a point to not, hit the head on the check. He easily hit. just could have went straight. Yeah, he could have went straight at him and it would have been shoulder to head, and it could have been disastrous for the Leafs prospect Ty Voigt. But that was just a clean body check. And I don't think off the replay that it was that late. Was it a half second late? Sure. But a half second late in the game of
2: hockey? Good luck. I know. And, and the problem in all of this is that dissuades and discourages players from even entertaining body checks like that. And, and this really hit me. And, and I, I wish I could remember, I should have written it down like daytime game, but I remember watching one of our games. I don't think it was this season, but very recently enough anyway. And there's a player, you know, between the net and the corner in below the goal line in his own zone, a defenseman and a four checkers coming in and like the player was essentially flat footed. And instead of coming in forechecking and and laying a body check to to separate player from puck or to go after that puck, it was more of a like turn my body sideways and deliver this glancing blow and then stick my butt into your hip and see if I can work the puck out that way. And I that's when it re- I realized like this is this is what we're turning our game into. And I don't want to be that guy. I'm not a Neanderthal. I promise, I'm not a Neanderthal. But damn, I don't know if that's the kind of game I want.
0: I'm I'm right with you. And but I think what you're what you're alluding to is just this year's game because it's not the OHL you're used to let's call a spade a spade. It's not, it's not the caliber of hockey that you're used to in the OHL still. And this is March 1st at the time of this recording. Um, How many times this year have I said in a hockey game, will somebody lay a body check? (laughs) I know it's true. How many, like a lot, right? A lot. There are body checking has went out the window this year. So many times during a game, do you see a player go and try to stick check someone instead of just laying the body? So many times during a game, do you see a scrum in front of the net where the puck is loose and everybody's just got their both hands on their sticks. Instead of laying a guy out, you can't score if you're on your hiney, like lay them out, be physical. But that physical aspect isn't there right now because of so many new rookies into this league. They haven't had a full year in the OHL training with OHL's training coaches and stuff to build up that muscle mass. They haven't had the off-season program issued to them for two summers that you normally do. So, And the development of these players has taken an absolute hacking because of this pandemic. So it's not the same game that we're watching this year that we are used to in the OHL. It's just not. And I don't think... It will be until maybe next year, or this could be a ripple effect where we don't see it be the same game for about three or four years. I don't know. Um, but it certainly isn't what we are used to in the Ontario Hockey League right now. And that that goes for everything, not just the physical side, but the last couple of weeks have really stood out to me in the uh, minimal physical aspects of a hockey game.
2: I'll just leave it on one more point before we move on. And I, I don't mean to... Make guilty the actually innocent, but I'm just going off the top of my head here. When you mentioned that the penalty assessed to Nathan Rebo was a major for a blindside hit, didn't we see one of those? I think maybe even oh, it couldn't have been in the playoffs so late season, or maybe uh, Greg Morales. Am I wrong about this? And didn't he? And and it was. I'm almost positive it was a kitchen arranger. It was a higher profile player. It was absolutely a blindside hit. More not at the high not at high speed. It was kind of along the boards between the benches, and there was a, you know, a knock. But got five games if I'm not mistaken uh, in the in the analysis from the league afterwards. So uh, that's all off the top of my head. It might have been three games, but I'm going stream of consciousness here. I, I'm pretty sure it happened though.
0: I just think he might get a break because there was no head contact yeah. at all. And there definitely and I, was
2: I, in the example I'm remembering.
0: Yeah, I hope Ty Voigt's okay. I hope that. He's fine and back playing before long.
2: Um, but that that was just a <laughs> crushing body check. A great I want, play. I want Ty Voigt back playing because we get to see him this weekend. Yeah. Be
0: good. And he's his skating. Oh, oh. For any Leaf fans, if you haven't seen Ty Voigt, just watch 10 minutes of a hockey game just to watch this kid skate. It's something else. The, the top,
2: just real quick on that front. Yeah. I know Sarnia is not – everybody knows. Look at the standings. No offense, Sarnia not a great team this year, at least points and standings wise, but youngest the, team in the OHL and the high end on that team with Voight and the two Nolans Burke and Dan, like that it's, it's fun to watch. Namestikov is no slouch. Nolan to so, Gersey. also a great yeah. example. Yeah. So oh, listen, if you haven't bought a ticket to the Sarnia sting yet, don't just look at the standings, go watch this team. There is some talent there.
0: But that that's what I'm talking about. Cause it, that's a perfect example because the top end talent is great. A lot of these teams in the OHL have the top end talent, but where you expect the bottom talent to be isn't where it normally is. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yep. So we're not seeing that. It's, it's the, the top cohort. end guys and then everyone else. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, double And, and there's yeah. such a gap. Yeah. You can see it on the ice. It's, it's alarming almost the, big of, or the size of the gap between the top guys and everyone else. There's a few rookies that have come into the league or a few yeah, new players to this league that have come in and made things work, but there's a big pile that haven't. And they're going to have to if they want to stay in this league over the next three years.
2: That's going to be another three to four year window. You were talking about yeah. that with the body checking until the league kind of gets back to quote unquote normal. It's going to be a few years for that Uh, before we get on to our guest who had a very prolific junior career and then spent some time in Europe in one of the most beautiful places, uh, nowhere near Russia. So it's a terrible segue, but uh, sports leagues are starting to react to Russia's invasion of Ukraine a week ago and the Ontario hockey league out with its statement today. I don't know how you view all of this Popper, but for me, on the list of things that Russia needs to be punished for in response to its invasion of Ukraine Uh, sports and anything, you know, athletically competitive is way the hell down the list. I would just say that certainly for any player that is in the league today, uh, I don't think that player deserves any different treatment. It's much like, the Prime Minister of Canada said, love "Love 'em or lump them our quarrel is not with the Russian people; it's with Vladimir Putin and his administration." So let's just be clear about that. I, I'm thinking of a Kirill Steklov from Estonia. I know not yep. right in Russia, but you know, let's just let's just be realistic with, with what we have here and and treat them as the equals in the league that they are. But if Hockey Canada and and other organizations aren't taking a good hard look at Russia and whether you play tournaments there and how much you support anything going on there. Uh, I can certainly understand it. And sports is the area that we're kind of working in when it comes to this podcast. So yeah, you got to comment on Russia's role now in the world of sports.
0: I have no problem with any Russian player already here playing any sport across. If there's a Russian table tennis player here in Canada, I have no problem with them. If there's a Ru- Russian croquet player here in Canada, I have no problem with them. The, obviously, the problem is with that idiot. Because, and if you think asking Alexander Ovechkin or any of these players, they're not going to stand up. There's too much to lose at home because of what this idiot has created in his dictatorship over there. But this same idiot basically forced players to allow him to score eight goals in an exhibition hockey game and fell down when he was going around waving to fans because he can't stand up sporting is so important to him yes sport is at the very bottom as things that need to happen with this war on ukraine but those when when you take away some of the things that people are taking away those sting him they hurt him he doesn't like that because russia number one so when you take away world junior championships when you take away under 18s when you take away women's hockey I think it stings them. What doesn't do anything is where, I forget who it was, is going to allow them to play under the UOF, United Athletes of Russia, but not have their flag. (laughs) It's the same thing. Welcome to the the IOC, though. I mean, come on. Criminal as criminal can get. That's bad. when it comes to the CHL, there was talks this week that the CHL may not allow teams to draft Russian players in the import draft. And I go to our former guest and pioneer in this game, sonia Saperji, because why try to say something when someone else has already said it best. And she put out on Twitter that that that's great, but that's kind of playing into Putin's hand. That's exactly What he wants. He doesn't want athletes to leave Russia. He wants athletes to stay in Russia, play junior in Russia, graduate to the KHL and never leave because then he can control you. So, to not allow them to be drafted to come over here to play kind of plays into his hand. I think he's an idiot, but I don't hold any ill will, obviously, to the Russian athletes. I'll tell you
2: what, and this is for certain I'm going to be in, well, we. We'll be in three different hockey arenas this week for junior hockey games. And I am going to have in the back of my mind how goddamn lucky I am to be standing in a hockey arena, broadcasting a game, having a good time when people in Ukraine are cowering from airstrikes and other bombs going off in their neighborhoods. I cannot even imagine. I I don't recall it being... Feeling so close as it does today with what's going on over there. So freedom, baby. Oh, I am so grateful for you.
0: I think it feels close because you're seeing men saying goodbye to their families, having to stay in Ukraine to fight. You see professional athletes like the Kalichko brothers, heavyweight champs of the world, going back to Ukraine to fight.
2: How is Vitaly the mayor of the one town, I'm
0: like what the probably because he me? walked in there one day and said, I want to be mayor, Maybe. and nobody said anything, yeah, because he would destroy the entire city. It's awesome, That's <laughs> he's okay, awesome. like, I think it's great, and just an unbelievable boxer, huge human. But he's going back to fight for his country because of what's happening. Mean, like, you want to talk about what we have in this country and what's going on? Do we have our problems? Yes, but. We got morons parking trucks in our nation's capital saying we want freedom. Buddy, I'm going to a hockey game. I'm, I could go to the store right now and have a beer. Like, Talk about freedom. Take a look in the mirror. Man, I think that's why it hits closest to home because we've had people in our country screaming that we don't have freedom. Meanwhile, you look across. There's people in Canada. There's athletes in Canada that are abandoned from their families in Ukraine and Russia sitting here in tears wondering if they're going to ever talk to their family again. And we're worried about price of
2: gas. All right. A little bit of perspective and now we can get on with some enjoyment of the stories that come from this game that we love so much. And again, I got to say the shade I tried to throw at our local listeners of this podcast, notwithstanding, I know fans in Kitchener remember him. Well, he mentions in this conversation, uh, the, the battle that was the Plymouth Whalers for him and his teams back in the day. But obviously there is one big story associated with this player it has been told in different ways from different guests on this podcast before and as soon as you hear chris mention this man's name in the introduction you'll know what story we're talking about and this time we get to hear it straight from the dildo i mean the horse's mouth (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't even gonna say that word i wasn't sure oh um well you're fine you can there's a town Uh, in newfoundland named that yeah i know that's very fair that's very fair
0: yeah. Uh, shout out to everyone who listens in Newfoundland. Thank you for our listeners. Newfoundland, simple Newfoundland.
2: Um, it's like understand. That's how I remember. I saw somebody understand type it that way once. Yeah. It's yeah. Newfoundland. Understand. I've never forgotten since.
0: Yeah. I like that. It's not Newfoundland. Um, Stop it. Anyway, the, this player originally from Montreal, Quebec drafted to the Sioux Greyhounds traded to the Erie Otters That it was his OHL career. Yes, he added an OHL championship and then played a bunch. Pro, still involved in the game. A fantastic conversation. Every question leads to a story. Get your adult toys ready. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Pecker.
2: Okay, the first question to me, I mean, there's so much to cover, but let's start with how a kid from Montreal ends up in the Ontario Hockey League and with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds no less
1: (laughs) yeah so it's actually a pretty good story and Kitchener is actually involved in this story I I grew up in Montreal and when it was my draft year the year before my draft year my dad had gotten um, a job in Toronto so we had a house at the time we we had a house in Toronto and in Montreal so I was able to kind of pick what league I wanted to play in and I was the number one rated player in Quebec and Bay Como was coming into the league. And although my French is, I'm fluent in French, I didn't really want to go to Bay Como at the time. So we sat and talked as the family and we, we decided that the OHL would be the better route. Um, and the reason Kitchener comes into this is because I played, so I started finally when I said that I was going to the OHL. So I had some OHL teams come and watch. And at the time, I believe his name was, who was the GM in Kitchener, the one guy who got, uh, there was a bad story about him, o- O'Mara. Anyways, it was, we, could, I, we could look it up, but the GM of Kitchener came to watch me play, and I, I, I actually had one of my worst games that I had all year, and he told my mom after the game, he's like, nah, I would never draft him, I don't think he's going to do well in the OHL. And here I was, like the top-rated player in Quebec, and I had a bad game, and 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 I was so pissed because I Kitchener was one of the teams I had heard about, and you know at the time with no social media, so you you know you hear different things. But Kitchener was one of the teams that I you know maybe wanted to go to. Um, and then he's like, no, he literally flat out told my mom I would never draft him, never take him. And that's why every time I played Kitchener, I think I, I mean, my stats through my four and a half years in the OHL were like I, I I was well over a point and a half a game every time I played Kitchener because that like that stayed with me the whole, my whole career, <laughs> The chip, but uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but that's how, that's how it went. So we, we decided to go to the OHL and then I really wanted to go to Kingston. There was Kingston, Kitchener, um, Windsor was, Windsor was going to draft me. They told my parents, if I'm still there, I would I remember they were, they were picking tenth, and then my dad woke up the morning of the draft. like, I don't want you to go Windsor. We had some good meetings with Sault Ste. Marie. But it was so far that my parents didn't really want me going there. But I don't know there was something about that place that made them feel comfortable, and they didn't want me to go to Windsor. So Kingston didn't take me. They took a kid, Jamie Young, I'll never forget, who never really panned out and played more than, I think, a year and a half in the OHL. And then I ended up going to Sault Ste. Marie.
0: Now, Mike likes to go, go in chronological order, <laughs> and I'm going to immediately destroy that. So I apologize, Mike. No problem. I, because... I think there's only one question to start off for me, and that is when you score a goal as a member of the Erie Otters for whatever time, and all of a sudden for the first time you see adult toys litter the ice, what is going through your mind?
1: So we were in the playoffs, um, (laughs) and that year we won the OHL championship, and I believe it was like the first or second game of the conference finals, uh, and I scored a goal, And then, you know, one of the toys was thrown on the ice. And then the next game I scored another goal and there was about 10 of them. By the end of the, of the playoffs, it was like, you remember when, when Colorado, no, it wasn't that bad. Remember when Colorado played the Panthers and they threw all the rats on the ice, like in 1990, I forget what year it was, 96, or 97. Anyways, it was, it was actually crazy because it became this like huge thing. They made t-shirts. It was in sports illustrated. And then the guy who owned the sex store in Erie, he was on the news and he was like saying how much he loved me and, and, and how well the store was doing. So it was really cool. It was a really cool thing that happened. And obviously people still ask me about it to this day.
2: We have had your former coach from that time, Dave McQueen, on this podcast. And he said that the tradition, if we can call it that, call it that followed you all the way to the Memorial Cup in Guelph. Yeah,
1: yeah, so yeah, exactly. So it happened through the OHL championship. So there was a few more series, um, and then I think in Guelph there was like a couple. But no, in the finals uh, we played Barry that year. It was it was pretty crazy, and I had I had twenty five goals in the playoffs. So uh, so that guy definitely you know his story did quite well.
0: <laughs> were were your friends and family chirping you about it? Were your friends gifting it you know toys to you for your birthday and stuff after no. that or? Did,
1: so it was funny because the 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 maintenance guys, the ice guys didn't really no one wanted to touch any of these things obviously. <laughs> so it was pretty funny because one time we had a player Chris Eed who was just like uh, he was a great guy, he was a bit of a jokester and and he once picked it up. He once picked one up with his glove and then they put it in my stall and they hit it behind my helmet and then when I went to pick up my helmet it just came flying out. I was like kind <laughs> of startled um, but no, it, it was a pretty cool time. It was, it was, uh, it was definitely a lot of fun.
0: McQueen right. was telling us that in, that in Guelph during the Memorial cup, that he had to stop media from coming into the room once. Cause they were all stuck on the middle pillar. So they had to put towels around. Do you remember that? The funny thing is the
1: players, like they literally, there'd be hundreds of them on the ice when he scored and he scored a lot. And, <laughs> and the players or somebody would grab him. And they take them into the dressing room after the game. So we go into Guelph for the Memorial Cup. And in the middle of the dressing room, there's a steel beam. And I walk in before the first game. And they're all posted on this steel beam. And I'm going, seriously? So needless to say, after the games were over, we had to get the trainer to go in there and hang towels and wrap towels around this beam because the TV cameras are coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. definitely remember that. Yeah. We had, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty crazy time. We had a crazy following even with, in Erie because at the time uh, it was the first time, like they had gone that far, I believe in their existence. Um, and I think I remember talking to people in Erie, they actually thought we were professional, you know? And then after we won the OHL championship, we had a parade there must've been about 20,000 people on the street. So it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. Honestly, I, I, I played, I played in Europe. I played, you know, in the American League, and still, like, I still talk to like Brad Boys, Carlo Coliacbo, Chris Campoli, and you know, these guys. All three of them played had, had, you know, good NHL careers, and they still say the best time they ever had during their hockey career was playing Erie that year, and it was, it was just, it was awesome.
2: That's what I wanted to ask about. Since we've thrown the whole chronological thing out the window, I really have to let it go. It just, but that being said. <laughs> that's a special time. I mean, the, the Otters franchise with all of its previous incarnations, put that aside, you're playing for the Erie Otters when that first championship was won. was, was the moment. Did you feel the weight of the moment at the time, or was it only upon reflection, you kind of look back and realize how special it was?
1: Uh, no, I think we felt it at the time. I mean, the city, there was such a buzz. I, I remember we were up three, nothing in the finals and we were driving back from Barry. And it's, like, we kind of wanted to lose that game on purpose. But we, you know, we got back three, four in the morning, and there were thousands of people already lining up for tickets. You know, the the, the, the box office was opening up at seven a.m., and it was just everywhere we went. It was like me and Brad. We, I re, I'll never forget this actually. During the finals, uh, Brad Boys and I, we would drive together because our billets we were we were sore, we were neighbors, and we got stopped by the cops. I don't know if we went through a, a red light or something. And, and the guy like comes up to our window and we give him our ID and he's like, Oh my God. He's like, he's like, I'm not going to give you a ticket, but I need you to call my daughter. <laughs> so we were on the side of the road and we call this the cop's daughter. And, uh, you know, all like there, there were so many things that happened that year that were, it was so amazing. And to be like that age, you know, 18, 19, 20, it's, it's, you know, before you play pro, it, it's, it's such a cool feeling. And like I said, the city, the arena, even, I think there was only about maybe five or 6,000 people, but literally, I mean, I played in front of 15,000 and I still remember, I'll never forget coming on the ice, like for warm up in the playoffs. And it was just so loud and it was like a whiteout. And I still remember it to this day. I remember so much about that season and the players. And I'm still very close with the GM, Sherry Bass. And I speak to him all the time. I haven't talked to Dave in a few years, but I kept in touch with him. And there's like a core group of us that still, you know, speak every so often.
0: Do you have a good Bass story for us?
1: Oh my God, where do I start? I should,
0: I should rephrase that. Can you pick only one bass story for <laughs> yeah. us? Yeah,
1: so, so him, Brad and I were, you know, obviously probably his two favorite at the time. And, you know, we were in a, we were on a losing streak and we were going through, uh, you know, Peterborough and Oshawa. Anyways, we, we get, I think we, we got into Peterborough and Brad and I, they split us up. Normally we room together, together but they split us up So that night we went to bed. The next morning we come down to breakfast and, and Bass pulls Brad and I aside and we thought, okay, like he was going to say, like, you know, we really need to win one. He's like, did you guys switch your rooms? It's like, you guys weren't supposed to sleep together. Did you guys switch your rooms? And we were like, yeah, this guy started to yell. Okay. You could have probably heard him in Sault Ste. St. Marie. Like I have never, I was like, he just lost your on the two of us. I mean, he was just, it was, I still remember that like standing there with Brad and he's just losing on us and spitting on us. <laughs> but, uh, the bass was, bass was awesome. Like I said, I still speak to him to this day and his kid, his grandkids actually come to my camp. Um, so, uh, but he was great. I mean, I could tell you stories and stories and stories that he used to tell us that he drafted Lindros, that he, he was Sackick's, uh he, he taught Sackick how to shoot. Like, there were a million different stories that were just like, you know, obviously probably not true, but we loved them anyways.
0: Who had the best Bass impression on the team? Because I know someone in that room used to do a good <laughs> Bass
1: impression. Oh, my God. Uh, I forget, but, yeah, <laughs> there are some good ones. I don't know if it was Brandon Cullen. One of them had a, had a pretty good one. And, and to be honest, we used to go for – he used to take us for dinner before every – every round that year so we'd go for a team dinner and this guy okay after dinner would talk and literally it would be a two-hour discussion to the point where we'd have to be like okay bass like we got to go home you know but man this guy once he gets talking like that's it you either cut him off or you could be there for a week (laughs) but again i i love bass I, i still speak to him he's great but like the amount of stories i could be here for a week
2: Yeah, I think when we had him on the podcast, we asked three questions. The podcast went on for almost two hours. That's just how it goes, right? Yeah.
0: Remember, Farzi. so real quick, just, Corey, we do, uh, we replay this podcast from time to time during our intermissions during the game, and they're about seven and a half minutes. Well, I was replaying the Bass interview the other day, and we asked one question, and then the rest of the interview was just Bass talking for seven minutes. That's (laughs) it.
1: And he still hasn't changed. When I speak to him, he gets me on the phone, and it's like 45 minutes, I'm like, okay, Bass, I got to go, you know? But
2: No one. I would change it. Yeah, exactly. While we're on those stories of people within the organization when you were there, uh, Dave McQueen, as I mentioned, also a a former guest on here. And I I was so glad he was because when I was covering Dave in this league, Corey, I'll be honest, he intimidated the hell out of me. He's got this gruff voice and gruff demeanor. Then he comes on the pod and he was one of our funniest guests hand down. So playing for him, what was it like? Was he intimidating as a coach?
1: So exactly, exactly what you said. He was very intimidating. Uh, I had a great relationship with him. He really kind of like changed the way I played, especially in the defensive zone. But if, if, you, were, if you were not playing well or you got on his bad side, that voice came out and you were like, yeah, you were, you were, you were definitely scared. Uh, but he was like a very fair, great coach. And I got, like I said, I had, I had a really good relationship with him and, and I kept in touch with him for years and years after he, when he went to Europe. Um, but definitely an intimidating guy. The first time I, I, when I got there, I'd been in Sault Ste. Marie for three and a half years. I got there and like my first meeting, I'll I'll never forget sitting there. And I heard him speak. And, you know, when I remember being in Sault Ste. Marie and I I would hear this, like he'd yell from the bench and I'd be like, well, what is that? You know, but when you're sitting in, in his office and you're talking to him and I was like, oh my God, this guy like scares me a bit, but which is not a bad thing, you know, as a player, but he's, he's a great guy. He's a great coach. Um, but yeah, definitely a
2: little intimidating. You just, to to, just to follow up there sorry chris but because we're talking about that time you come over from the sioux and then you're with dave and the otters and 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 that first year you come over uh it's it's a league trophy for most points but no championship the next year like were you, were you building to that did you come into that that season your your last year with that mission I, yeah definitely i mean the year before we thought we had the team i
1: don't know if you guys remember nikita alexia we had uh, Jason Baird, I don't remember these names, but we had a really, really good team. Um, but you know, we are, our, our kryptonite was Plymouth at the time. We, we just couldn't beat them. I mean, they were a great team. They had a lot of great players and the year that we won, although I thought, I think we would have beat them anyways, they happened to lose to London. So then we, we just felt like, you know, we had an easy path on, on the way to the championship, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to say because I remember after that year being like, ah, oh, like we let it slip away. Like, I, I don't think, that, you know, with the guys coming back that we have enough, you know, but in the end, you know, we traded for TJ Chetty. who was a great goalie for us in the playoffs. And then we got, you know, Bass made some great trades. Um, and we just really came together as a team. Like, I know everyone says that, especially, you know, in, in, in the years that you win a championship. But honestly, looking back, like it was, we, we were just such a close-knit group and um you know we had brad boys was just a great leader carlo coliacbo um you know so we had some great leaders we had great older guys great younger guys it was just and a great coaching and, and it, we really everything gelled together and we really were were played great playoffs and and um it was just like an like i said an awesome experience for someone you know i ended up playing later on in the spangler a couple couple times which was also was an amazing tournament an amazing time but you know, Erie was definitely my most special time, you know, during my
2: career for sure.
1: You mentioned Coley
0: Akeble. Maybe you can give him a bump for us. We reached out trying to get him on this podcast. He breezed us hard.
1: Oh really? Okay. Big I'm going sh- to give him I'm a shot yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'll call him though. After this, I'll try to get him on. <laughs> he, Carlo, Carlo is, and I, I'm sure Dave, I don't know if you asked Dave about him, but Carlo is just an awesome guy. You know, he does so much. I know he has a big job now in, in Toronto, but, um, he's just—he's a great guy. He loves hockey. He loves everything about it. He's a family guy. Uh, he's a funny guy. He's a really funny guy. Um, but uh, yeah, he'd be—he'd be a great guest too.
0: You mentioned that championship team and the guys you're still in connection with. Farzi and I were just talking about this the other day on one of our many road trips, but what is it about when you win a championship with guys that brings you closer? Because we often hear from people on this podcast that, Oh, I'm really tight with these guys still. And it's normally a championship team that brings those guys tighter.
1: You know, I I think you hear people talk about it all the time, you know, the, how like those tight teams are the ones that win. I've been on other teams, like even through my time in the American league or that we when when we barely made the playoffs or we didn't make the playoffs and, I don't know what it is, but like my best friends in hockey are like Carlo Coliaco and Brad Boyce, right? Are the two guys that I won a championship with, and we still speak to Carlo Campoli, and I still speak to Brandon Cullen, and like those are the guys that I speak to. And I don't know, I don't know what it is about winning a championship, but uh, it's definitely something that is super special that'll last with you forever. Look, I am now forty; it was twenty years ago, um, and literally I can remember almost that whole year. I, I remember the whole season. I remember scoring my 48th, 49th and 50th goal game Kitchener at home, uh, um, on, uh, one of uh, the second last weekend of, of the season. I remember everything about the playoffs. I remember Carlos scoring in overtime in London. Like I, I it just, it's just such a magical season. And, you know, I, I think it just gravitates to, to, you know, those kinds of people that you're close with when you, you did something special.
2: Have you had a chance to go back and see the arena since it's been renovated?
1: Yeah. I went back to see McDavid a couple times. Nice. Um, Yeah. Bass invited us back. Me, Carlo, Brad, and Campoli. We dropped the puck. uh, We met McDavid. And I remember saying this at the time, I think he was only 15 and I literally couldn't believe sort of what I was watching in the sense that like every single time the guy touched the puck, it was like you—you you just weren't watching. It, it's, it's like he wasn't playing the same game as the other players. And I played as an underage at 16, and I remember thinking to myself, "Holy, this speed of this game!" And they had guys like Legwand and Jack Richard Jackman at the time. Like they had a lot—we had a lot of good players when I was 16. And I just—I mean, I think I had like—I didn't play that many games, but I, I had like three or four goals or whatever. And then you watch this guy at 15, and he—it it was just one of the most incredible things I've ever seen.
0: You've talked a lot about or mentioned his name Brad Boyce. What is it
1: about Brad that made him so successful on the ice? So Brad was someone I really respected through my career. I didn't know him much. I played with him in an all-star game before I went to Erie and he was one of those guys that you'd always heard you know was sort of a quiet leader and I, at the time I always like was like okay, hey, what is a quiet leader? You know I was a guy who would like to stand up in the room and and you know you talk when you have to talk and you do what you, you do what you have to do on the ice but when I got to Erie, I really sort of saw what a quiet leader does. And, and he does, you know, all the right things. He says all the right things. He works hard. You know, he didn't he didn't always get up in the dressing room and, and, and you know, the yeah, yeah, and talking about, you know, whatever had to go on that game or that period. But when he did, everyone listened. And he was the type of guy who everyone followed. You know what I mean? So, like, if anyone touched him, the whole team got in there. I scored big goals, like, played good defense. So I think, like, when you have a guy who always does the right thing, you know, and that has the talent, you know, those are sort of special leaders. And through the OHL, like he, he was a special leader and I was a year older than him, but I really, really learned a lot from him and he went on to have a great career. I think he had 40 goals in Boston. He had a really great NHL career. And I think now he's, he's, he's in real estate, but he was just one of those guys who you, you also would gravitate to, and you would want to, you know, watch the way he practiced, watch the way he played games, watch the way he, he practiced face-offs um and I think that's what made him a great leader
2: for a lot of years Corey after your team won that championship there were some dismal years let's just be honest about for the Erie Otters organization I can't help but think about those Miami Dolphins that had the perfect season and popped the cork of champagne every time a team gets beaten I'm not sure how much I love that but when you saw this franchise starting to get its feet under it again. And, and you knew something was coming. I, I suspect that that you and the rest were celebrating just right along as Otters alumni that they were going to do this again.
1: Yeah. I remember the year. I mean, I remember the year, I mean, the year we went back to watch with David and then they went to the Memorial cup. And I think one year they lost in the finals of the Mem cup. And I remember watching the game as if like, I mean, I was sweating and I was like, it was like, I was watching my own kid. You know what I mean? Um, you know? So yeah, like I, I, I still follow them now. I still follow them a little bit and, and uh, you know, I follow them on Instagram. I see the scores. I know they're not doing so well, but I, yeah, every time they're in it or they get deep into the playoffs, like uh, I'll definitely tune in. Like, you know, I feel like attached to that team for sure.
0: This is really going to bother Farwell, but we're going kind of backwards. So I'm just curious <laughs> that going back to that trade from the Sioux to Erie, was it something where you wanted to change the scenery as a 19 year old?
1: Yeah. So, I, I I loved my time in Sault Ste Marie. I Dave Mayville at the time was was the general manager. Um, he was absolutely amazing to me. Uh, I had great billets. I, I loved it. I loved the city. It was a great place to play. You know, to start your AHL career in Sault Ste Marie, where you walk, everyone knows you, and uh, it, it was it was a great building at the time. That old building, but. Yeah, I felt like for me, um, you know, you don't get seen as much in Sault Ste. Marie and especially back in the days when there was no social media or no, or no nothing. So you would, you would have an eight-hour bus trip and, and then you, you'd play, you know, in, in Toronto and Oshawa. And if you didn't have a good game, like you just felt like you weren't necessarily being, being seen as, as much as the other guys. And I felt like our team wasn't, you know, they were sort of rebuilding again. We had a good year when I was 18 and then 19 wasn't such a good year. So Dave really did me a huge favor because we, I went in there to ask him for a trade. Uh, he didn't really want to trade me, but like I really, we really sort of begged him. Like We just thought it was the right thing for my career. And uh, as my dad tells me, my, I was playing for Sault Ste. Marie in Brampton, and Bassett happened to be at the game, and he came to sit next to my dad. He's like, I'm going to get your son. He's like, I'm getting him in the next few days. And a few days
2: later, that's where I went. We haven't had enough guys from the Sioux that played there on this podcast. We're going to have to make sure we change that. But I've always been interested because Chris and I talk about it a ton. It's obviously the longest road trip we have to make. And we only have to do it twice a season. The Sioux, as you just mentioned, every trip is an adventure. We just came from Guelph on this past weekend. It's a 20 minute trip from Kitchener for crying out loud. Yeah. How do you, how do you prepare for that? Like, what's it like doing those trips? So I think you, you have to get used to it. But like I
1: said, I think the toughest thing for, for me was, is like, you know, this, it's, it was the OHL, right? So you would leave, if your game was Friday night, you would leave Friday, you would drive seven hours and you'd have to jump on the ice, you know, so it, you would get used to it, but it definitely wasn't like driving half an hour, you know, feeling good, getting on the ice, playing your game. I, we had a lot of three and threes. Um, so I, I. It was tough. I never liked, I, I, I never liked to make an excuse about it, but it was, it's, it was definitely sort of, I felt like a little bit of a disadvantage compared to the other teams, um, you know, closer to Toronto. But like I said, I, I, I loved my time there uh, everything about the city. And to be honest, we, we never had a great team. I think we went to the second round once, but like if you do well there, I mean, the city is, just awesome. I remember watching, a year before I got drafted, like Thornton was there, and they went to the Memorial Cup, or they won the Memorial Cup around that, or around that time, or maybe just before that. And I saw like a great videos, and oh, there was another good story about Bass. I'll tell you a quick story about that. When Bass won the when the uh, Mem Cup, so they were playing Peterborough in the finals. So he he always tells this story how like the night before the, the finals, he's like he's like I found these women and I sent them up to Pronger's room, and the next day in the finals. He's like, Pronger couldn't skate. He was just terrible, and that's why we won. <laughs> that was another good, bad story awesome. that he always that's used awesome. to tell us. Yeah, um, But, yeah, it was. I, I guess you could say it's a little bit of a disadvantage, that first game when you're driving seven hours and have to jump on the ice. But you're you're, you're a kid, right, at 16, 17. You got those young legs. So uh, looking back, yeah, it wasn't so bad.
0: So what was worse, all those long travel days from the Sioux, all the long travel days when you were with Erie, or all the long travel days on a bus and a sleeper bus in the American League? Because apparently (laughs) Uh, your travel with hockey is something to write about.
1: My travel was awful, because then I played in Cincinnati, which was awful. So I think at minimum, like our shortest trip was seven or eight hours. I'd say the worst for sure was the American League. I also didn't love the American league. Like I did the OHL. Like I, I, I loved playing the OHL. I really, I I really loved it. And then I loved playing Europe. So then I went to Switzerland and in Switzerland, that was amazing for me because the longest trip was four hours. So I was like, that was like incredible. You know, that was like uh, a dream for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say the American league, that was, uh, that
2: was not fun. What led you to make the decision to jump overseas?
1: I think at the time I realized, I realized that I wasn't going to play in the NHL, and I felt like for my career, you know going over to Europe was, was probably the best thing to do. Looking back, uh, I went, I played five years, or five and a half years in the American League. Had I known what Europe was, I probably would have left after two. Um, everything about the playing in Europe was just amazing. I mean, I played in Switzerland, which was a beautiful country. I played in, in, in a great city. Um, I played in two Spangler Cups for Team Canada, which was an amazing experience. It's easier on your body, not as many games. Um, so if you're not, for me, if you're not going to play in the NHL full time, like I always say, like definitely go to Europe, but I have a few buddies that stuck it out. I don't know if you guys remember like PA Parenteau, you know, he stuck it out in the, in the American League for a long time and had a great NHL career. So I guess. You know, when you're when you're in the American League, you're once one call away from playing in the NHL, you know, but uh, but playing in Switzerland was, you know, I, I had a great five years there for sure.
0: I want to get to some of the Swiss stuff in a bit, but I want to go back to Sault Ste. Marie and your time there as being somebody who was obviously highly touted coming into the OHL. How tough was that first year as obviously an underager and only putting up a handful of points and only getting a minimal amount of ice?
1: Yeah. So I actually got sick. I have Crohn's, um, and it got diagnosed that year. So I think I had seven points. I think I only played like 20 games or so because I got sick in, I'd say October. And then I didn't come back until March, like at the end of the season. Um, so, so that was a really tough year for me, but the organization was amazing. Um, and then, but yeah, like you see, I remember even the first few games, like I was a first rounder and we had this guy, John Osborne, who was the second rounder who was also an, uh, an underage player and he was playing a lot more than me. And I think coming from Quebec and in Quebec, you, at the time you went from midget triple a, it was called, and then you went to junior. So you didn't, there was no like junior a and junior B the way it is in Ontario. And I think that's a way better system because it, it, it gets you ready to play against men where in in, in midget, um, you know, you're playing against only 15 and 16 year olds. You know, I think the younger kids in junior, you get to play already against guys that are 17, 18, and that sort of. I need, I didn't have that learning curve. So when I got to the OHL, I'll never forget my first scrimmage in in uh, in I mean, You guys remember Richard Jackman? He was like a top pick, yeah. in, in defenseman. Yeah. Anyways, he just looks at me at the time. He had no teeth, and he looks at me, and here I come from my like midget AAA, where I was like. I was like putting up crazy numbers and he looks at me, he's like, I'm gonna F kill you. And I was like, You're on my team, like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I remember telling my mom after I'm like, I don't know if this is the league I should be in right now, you know. So I needed like a good learning curve, I needed some time. And and it also happened to be like one of my first games in London. You guys remember John Erskine? For sure. Same type of thing happened. I lined up against this guy, he looked over at me and and I almost, you know, went to the bathroom in, in my <laughs> hockey pants. But like, I was like, oh no, like I didn't go up against these guys, you know, so it was all new for me. So it took me a little while to kind of get adjusted. And then I started putting better, started putting up better numbers as my second, in my second year.
2: You know, you mentioned Jackman and his toothless face when he meets you at that scrimmage. Uh, You remind me a little bit of Rocky Balboa, Corey. Never. Yeah, it was Rocky that never broke his nose till the fight with Apollo and all your teeth. How do you go through a hockey career like that? Yeah.
1: So I, I promised my mom, I said, once I said, cause she didn't want me to go to the OHL. She was like, you're going to go to school. And at the time, you know, as a number one rated player in Quebec, it felt like it was just, they told you if you want to play in the NHL, you want to play pro, you go to junior. So I promised my mom that I would never, never lose my teeth or break my nose. And I was never a fighter. I think I had in my four and a half years in, in, in the OHL, I might've had three or four majors and I might've dropped my glove gloves once. <laughs> So I was always, always played with a good enforcer, especially in, in Erie when I, you know, my last couple of years, I played, you know, remember Brandon Cullen? Yep. He played in Erie. He was a big, tough guy, scored some goals. So he played on my line. So I was, I had free reign. I would face wash guys all the time. And then, and then Brandon would come in, but I, I was, I was never a fighter. So I got, I was pretty lucky. I never broke my nose. I never lost my teeth. I don't even think I had a concussion. So I went through four and a half years and then almost like 10 or 11 years of pro. And I was pretty lucky. That was one of the reasons why I actually retired in the end. I was, I was sort of like, I was like, ah, am not sure if I really want to play. And then I was like, I still have my teeth, my nose. And so I'm like, all right, I'll call it. I'll call it quits.
0: Did you ever play in the uh, famous Quebec Wee tournament?
1: I did not. That no? was one of my worst. No, we lost out to the team ahead of us. And I still remember to this day crying when we found out that we weren't going that tournament as growing up in Montreal, that tournament was literally yeah. like winning the Stanley cup. It was like, and yeah, we, I mean, I grew up watching on TV and it was, it was the, you know, we were so excited and we were the second best team and, and we had just lost out to that team and, and they picked that team to go instead of us. And we were like devastated. One of my, it was, I was most of dev- The two most times I was devastated in my hockey career was, was that not going to the Wee tournament and then losing in the mem cup semifinals.
2: It's funny how as much as that championship team is still tight and you, you referred to it as we started today, the, the glory days, but those, those losses stay with you for a long time too.
1: Oh, a hundred percent losing yeah. the, losing that mem cup game. And uh, we, we were in Guelph and to be honest, we were up four to two with three minutes to go in the semifinals against Victoriaville, who we had beaten six two in the in a preliminary round. And they scored with three minutes to go, three seconds to go. We lost in overtime, which was Carlo's fault. If you ever get him on the show, ask him about that. Nope. Uh, (laughs) But, but, um, but yeah, honestly, that was my most devastating loss. And again, like as much as you remember the good times, you know, you still remember those, you know, that, that tough loss, but yeah, definitely remember that one. That one stung for sure.
0: What's it like in the dressing room after a loss like that? So heartbreaking. And after, as you said, you, you thought maybe the year before you guys had the team and then to get there this year and then to have that loss.
1: Yeah. I mean, other than when I was like 12 years old, didn't go to the Wee tournament. I never, I never thought I would actually cry after a hockey game. But I think for me and most of the guys, I mean, I think everyone was crying. And it was, you know, my OHL career was done uh, and we had lost. So it was like a double whammy. Um, and like, you know, like we were talking about, like when you're, when you're, when you have such a tight group and you guys are, you're having such a great time and it's a great year, like you don't want it to end. I mean, and obviously you want it to end with winning, but, uh, so it was, it was just a devastating loss. I remember everyone in the room. I don't think anyone said a word for about a good 10, 12 minutes. And, uh, it was, it was definitely a
2: tough one. That led to, as you've already talked about the time in the American hockey league, but I- how much of that time, if any, Corey, because, you know, you weren't no, you weren't a dummy out there or anything, but how, how much of that time did you spend thinking that there might be a chance with the Calgary Flames who had drafted you in the sixth round?
1: Um, so I, I had a ch- actually, I had a choice to make after I was my, after my 19 year old year, they offered me a contract Calgary and I had a choice to take it and maybe go to the American League or to decline it go back for my overage for my uh, overage year and you know so and, and see where I where I can go from there and I decided to obviously go back which was the best decision I ever made I thought my best chance to play in the NHL was with Anaheim um, I'm never I'm never one of those guys to make excuses you hear a lot of hockey players I'm sure in every sport they're like ah oh, I got screwed the GM and this you know, but my, my rookie year in the American league, I led the team in goals. I think I had 20, 20 goals, 21 goals. We did not have a great team. And then the year after that, it was, it was the lockout. So then all these guys, and at the time Anaheim was stacked, they had Joffrey Lupul, Chris Kunitz, Dustin Penner. Uh, so I got like, I was like a first liner going back excited. And then I got like, you know, the pecking order came in and then, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a big signing bonus and, uh, and then gets and Perry came later that year. So uh, I think my best shot was to play in Anaheim, but another good story I'll tell you all, And I'll never forget this. My first training camp in Anaheim, Mike Babcock's the coach, and he's a rookie coach in the NHL. And here I am coming off probably, I think I had 42 goals in the OHL. And my first meeting with him, he kind of looks at me and he's like, look, I'm going to tell you something. He's like, you're never going to be a scorer at the, at the NHL level ever. He's like, if you want to play in the NHL, you need to be a third or fourth line guy, win face-offs, kill penalty. And here I am, I'll never forget, thinking to myself like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> like, I, was, I just, I'm just putting up major points in the OHL. I've scored at every level of my whole life. Like, no, I'm going to play in the NHL. I'm going to score. And he was 100% right. I needed to be like a Mike Fisher type guy, third, fourth line, still kind of score goals, but like change my game to play like that. And I never did because I just, you know, but it's funny that he was the first guy to tell me. And I remember being like, who's this guy like he's just like a you know i remember at the time i it was our first training camp and paul korea adam Oates, all these guys hated him because he was skating them he was doing all these weird things and these guys didn't want to like didn't want to know from him i remember hearing that and stressing him but years later i wish i had listened to him
0: <laughs> maybe it maybe it's chris kunitz's fault maybe if chris kunitz wasn't there then you get traded for ryan whitney to pittsburgh you get put on sid's wing and then you are a yeah, scorer and yeah. take that babcock
1: a good, a good story about Kunitz, too, is his first year in Anaheim at training camp, I don't know if it, he, he didn't, like, I guess his skates never made it, but he didn't really tell anyone, so it was, he was borrowing skates. Literally, guys were laughing because they had gave him, like, a million-dollar signing bonus coming out of school, and I guess they, they knew something that we all did. And I remember, like, we were all, like, kind of laughing. I'm like, this guy's terrible. Like, he was so bad his first few days, and everyone was like, he's awful, what did they do? And again, we were majorly wrong. And Kunitz is a great guy and had like the most amazing career. I mean, no one ever thought he would have had a career that he had, even if we didn't think it was awful. But uh, it was just funny. I remember the first couple of days, everyone was kind of sitting and laughing at him, but I could promise you when they were watching the Olympics, they weren't laughing at him. So yeah.
2: <laughs> you mentioned uh, a little while back, Corey, that when you were with the Erie Otters, it was the Plymouth Whalers who were your kryptonite. Uh, when you were in the league, What was your, what, what rink did you go into where you felt like you played the best and which building did you
1: hate going into? I mean, I guess Mississauga, because at the time, I mean, it was like a three, four point night every time. And my family's from Toronto and, you know, I'd have a ton of people there. So I'd say Mississauga and Plymouth for me, honestly, Plymouth was always like one of those places where they just, I, I, I remember my first year, Paul Mara slashed me across the face. I still have a major scar. And I I had to get – so when you have to get stitches in Plymouth, or at least back then, you have to walk through their dressing room. So I remember getting hit in the, in the first period, and it was with like a few minutes to go in the period. So I went in, the doctor stitched me up, and I, I remember I was like a 16-year-old kid. I had to walk through their dressing room in the middle of the intermission, and they were all sitting there. And they were all like like yelling at me, and I was so scared. And <laughs> I don't think I ever got over that because – I think I had one good game the rest of my career in, in Plymouth. So I'd say Plymouth. That's
0: pretty intimidating when they're all yelling at you when oh, you're already kidding. Like,
1: and I'm a, I was a young kid. I was 16. And, and yeah, walking through that room in, in the middle of the intermission, I again, I still remember that. It was terrible. You,
0: you talked about your time in Cincy, and I took a look at the roster. There's one name that stands out to me, and that's Ilya Brzgalov. Oh,
1: God. Do, you,
0: do you remember anything about him when you oh, were playing man. with him there?
1: So uh, the same way, I could tell you stories for about seven years with Bass, I could tell you about a million stories about Brids, But I will tell you a great story. My first professional game, my first American League hockey game, we're playing the Griffin, uh, the Red Wings at the time. Uh, no, we're not, what's uh, where are they from? Uh, the Red Wings Grand team, Grand Rapids.
0: Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yep. Griffins. Exactly. Sorry, Grand Rapids. So the year before, okay, Anaheim and Detroit they shared a team. They they all played in Cincy under Babcock and then they split. They each wanted their own American league team. So there was a misunderstanding and not really a misunderstanding, but I think between Sean Avery was, had a friend uh, who was a Russian girl um, that year. And then the next year when we came back, Brizglov was married to this girl. (laughs) Okay. He was married to this Russian girl and everyone was like, how did that happen? He was, you know, she was with, she was with Avery. So our first game, we're playing Grand Rapids, and Avery's on that team. And literally on the first – one of the first whistles, okay, you see Brizglov, he, he gets a puck under his, his glove and his blocker, and he freezes it, and they blow the whistle. All of a sudden, Avery goes and stands on the back of the net, and he says something that I won't repeat on this podcast. He said something to Briz. Okay, Brizglov throws his glove and his blocker down, and he's chasing him around the ice with his, with his stick, like with a baseball bat, he's just trying to like kill him. And that was my first professional game, and he got kicked out of that game. So that was like a good bridge story. But yeah, that guy was a complete joker. I don't, I don't know how Philadelphia, but I, I will tell you, when he wanted, that guy was unbelievable. But he would come to practice and he would let every puck in if, he, if it was like he didn't care or he was, the type, he, was, he was a horrible teammate. He was the type of guy who would like, when we had like a team dinner or whatever, he wouldn't come. He would just pay the team fine. He wouldn't even like the like, guys I'm not coming. like – so he that's was, weird. I don't, yeah, I don't really think anyone has yeah. anything good to say about Briz.
2: You know, it's, it's funny because obviously you've been through a lot of hockey by that time and, and you're a young man, but if that's your first professional game did at any point it go through your head, like maybe this should be my last professional game. It, it,
1: it was, it was crazy. My family there, we were laughing about it after, but he literally like threw off his glove and block and was chasing around the ice. And we were like on the bench, you're we like, what, what's going on here? And we were a young team. Um, you know, but Briz, Briz did what he wanted when he wanted, and you know, but lucky for him, I mean, Philadelphia gave him 50 million bucks. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <they laughs> went. Just, that was
2: a bizarre. You, you were that yeah. close to it all, Corey. You were all you were that close oh, to it. Exactly.
1: That's yeah. what we were saying. We yeah. were all like, if someone could give bris 50 mil, like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, just give me five, like, I'll make a joke out of myself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that time
0: like, though? Because you look at that roster, you guys had Penner, you had uh, Obi Shane O'Brien, and yeah. a guy who I've heard nothing but positive things, Zenin Kanopka. Kanopka. Like it must have been, it must have been a time.
1: Oh uh, yeah, we did. We I actually had an amazing time with the guys that year. Kanopka was a, a, a good story, a quick story. I'll tell you about him. Our, our first exhibition game, I'm sitting right next to him on the on the bench, and I didn't really know him that well. Um, and the guy literally gets a—he sh- was wearing no visor. He gets a shot. Okay, we're sitting on the bench, we're talking. He gets a puck right in the mouth. Okay, his teeth are all out. I'm like, oh my god, thank God it wasn't me. Okay, he's gushing everywhere. The trainers are like, all right, you got to get off. He's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. This is an exhibition game in the American League. Okay, but this—that—that that is exactly the way he played, and exactly why he had an NHL career. Because this guy—I've never played with a guy who had more heart. Like he wasn't a great skater. He wasn't a great shooter. But man, this guy was a hockey player from top to bottom, and I'm sure I, if you talk to anyone else about like about him, they would say the exact same thing. If I if I knew how to be like Zenon Konopka on the ice, man, I would press that button every single day because he was just he was incredible. He was he would fight, and he ended up being in the American League. He actually put up some numbers, I think, later on, and then he had a pretty decent. You, you know, he played for a guy who never should have played in the NHL. I think he played four, five, six years. Uh, but an incredible teammate and, and just an incredible, like, uh, you know, guy with, with, with a tremendous amount of heart on the ice. My teeth hurt just hearing that story. Oh, <laughs> my God. Right at, when I say right in the mouth, I mean right here. No mouth guard. And this is the American League. I don't know where we were playing our exhibition game. Who knows, Cleveland or something. It's like a uh, disaster. Disaster.
2: What was yeah. the European experience like for you?
1: For me, it was it was incredible. Um, I played in Lausanne for most of my time there, which is, is an unbelievable place to play hockey. I mean, we were we were getting 10, 12, people a game there. Unbelievable fans uh, all over the city. It was like to me growing up in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal. I was a huge Canadiens fan. My whole like childhood was about hockey, and uh, I saw the, I saw them win the cup you know uh, a couple times. Um, and it was just like that in Lausanne, everyone loved hockey and, and being like the foreigner being like, you know, one of the Canadi- top two Canadians on the team. And, you know, I had, I had a couple of great years there. Like they treated you like I'd walk around Lausanne, like, like I, like I was Carrie price, you know what I mean? So it was, it, it was a really cool experience, but they're also like, sort of like you see like with the soccer. I mean, I remember my, it was my first or second year in Lausanne. We were up three, nothing in the semifinals on a team that we, obviously we're beating handily and the team hadn't been to the finals in years and we lost four straight. And I'll never forget coming out. We lost this game seven at home. And you know, in Europe, they give you a car with your name on it and the team logo and everyone loved me in that city until that happened. And then I came out, my car was full of egg and milk. I couldn't even like get into it. Uh, So they're very, very passionate, but, but honestly it was, it was also you know, other than, other than Erie, it was just uh, probably my most amazing experience in hockey.
2: Okay. Wait, did was I it? miss the part where you just said you were responsible for the game winning goal against or something? You just lost the series. No, I wasn't. <laughs> but like,
1: as you know, as the foreigners, cause there you only allowed a certain amount of, you know, foreigners and if you're not producing and, and I, you know, the other guy actually played, I played, remember Eric Himmelfarb played in Sarnia.
2: Yes, for sure.
1: Okay. So we were the two Canadians. Uh, we had great years and we were up three, nothing in the finals and then i don't know i don't remember we just blew it and and it was just like no they wanted
2: we they literally the security
1: wouldn't let us out like we had to wait 2 hours after the game until all the fans were out of there and, and like i said i got to my car i couldn't even get into it like i had to leave it there and catch a ride with someone else but yeah they and even like the swiss players they kind of turn on you a little bit but that's the way it is there when things are going well you're like king of the world and when it's not it's they just blame it on the foreigners cuz you're making more money and you're supposed to produce and uh, you know, so that's the way it is, but, I, and, but playing in the sp- you know what Spangler cup is, yep. so the Spangler cup was also, uh, an incredible experience for me. Uh, I went to like, uh, the world junior camps and, but I never played on, on the world junior team. Um, so playing for Canada, like at, at a, at a, at a tournament like this was, I mean, the way they treated us was absolutely incredible. And I went the first year, uh, we won um curtis joseph was actually our goalie i I became pretty close with him on on the trip and another guy who was just like i met him and i was just what a humble down-to-earth amazing human that guy is he was just such a pleasure i mean I, i i had all my meals with him i hung out with him and his wife and my dad and um i mean he was incredible too like beyond incredible that's the reason why we won but that whole tournament and experience was amazing
0: what was the biggest uh culture shock when it came to the game of hockey when you went overseas
1: well my first year i i i wasn't a big hitter or fighter in, in you know north america but i still like used to throw my body here and there and get mixed you know get involved a little bit anyways i get to switzerland and you know we, they have exhibition tournaments and i start throwing these big hits and whatever and then all of a sudden all these guys on my team are like what are you doing i'm like i don't know like i'm just the guy had his head down like i hit him <laughs> And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't do this here. You don't hit guys hard. And, and, and you know, in North America, when there's a big hit, everyone's, like, going nuts. In, in Europe, they whistle. They're like, you know, it's like they don't like it. So I realized really quick, like, okay, if you don't want me to hit, I won't hit. It's easier on my body. But so it's like, like yeah, they don't like big hits. And, and my own team was, like, turning against me my first few games because they were like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you hitting these guys for? And I was like, I don't know. Like, this is the way we play. Uh, so I think that was sort of the biggest uh, shock for me. It was just like there's no body contact there. What were your team colors?
0: Curious because I have a follow- up here we
1: were We were red and
0: white. Yeah, okay, so when you had to wear that funny little yellow helmet for the top score. I'm assuming you had to wear that. Did, did you look funny? Yeah. Or like, I'm sure you were like, what am I wearing? Yeah. What, no, wearing,
1: yeah. So at first it was like, what the hell is this? I could, yeah. I, I literally couldn't understand. Like, it looks like you're wearing, not only you wearing helmet, you're wearing a different helmet, you wear a different jersey. Sure. Is, yeah. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was weird, but I mean, you get used to it. I mean, like I said, t- t- to me, if you're not going to play full-time in the NHL, Switzerland is probably like definitely the best country to go to. I mean, it is, it's the only one I know, you know, but hearing stories from other guys, like, uh, unless you're going to go to the KHL and make, you know, really tons of money. Uh, Switzerland, like what a life there. Just, it's gorgeous. And like I said, there's no travel really. You're sleepy I, in, in five years in, 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 Switzerland, I didn't spend one night in a hotel, not one night. You never spend a night in a hotel. So it was like heaven. Um, so yeah, so it, it was a great bonus. experience for me.
2: Yeah. Big time. <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine any kid growing up, uh, in Quebec without becoming a hockey fan for sure. And a hockey player, likely you mentioned those roots and obviously the Montreal Canadians who had the greatest influence on you as a player when you got into the game. I'll be honest.
1: I actually sort of blame the reason why I didn't play in the NHL. My parents, because I grew up skiing and I didn't touch the ice until I was 11 years old. So I, we grew up skiing and although I always loved hockey as a kid and street hockey, I taught myself how to like skate through rollerblading. My first time ever on the ice was 11. Um, so, but I, I, you know what? I I think like just watching the Canadians. I mean, I also, I love Pavel Burry as a kid. I mean, I used to watch stories, uh, watch games and videos, him and Brett Hall were sort of my, my two biggest idols. And, 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 you know, my biggest forte for me playing hockey was my, my release, my shot. And I remember at a young age, two things happened to me. One, uh, Brett Hull, I remember watching one of my first games that I ever went to at the Montreal Forum was against St. Louis. And, and Brett Hull was playing, and I just I remember watching him, and he had that amazing shot. And also, my dad had a pretty cool job, and he got Gordie Howe. I can send you guys a picture of this after. He got Gordie Howe to come to one of our practices and come on the ice. And, and you know, uh, it was so funny because in Montreal – Gordie Howe came on the ice at seven. We were done by eight, by eight o'clock, the entire arena was like almost full in like one hour. Um, But that was really cool. And I really sat and talked to him after about, I mean, at the time I was young and I didn't realize I knew who he was, but like, I really didn't sort of understand. And, and he was telling me to do these wrist curls, his arms, his forearms were like massive. It was, it was insane. And, and, and I remember literally after literally after that practice, every single night for the next two, three, four years, just, Taking a stick and you know doing those wrist curls and and um, you know that that really resonated with me. Like sitting and talking to him after.
0: I know, growing up in Montreal, you got a chance to talk with quite a few Habs when you were younger. Was there one that was always your favorite or a conversation that you remember?
1: Uh, yeah, Gilbert Dion. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember him.
2: We've had him on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> We've had him on the podcast.
1: <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I I loved him. Uh, he also came to one of our practices um and and he was a great guy uh so there was him and then there was also Shane Corson so Shane Corson uh who I still speak to uh, to this day so Shane Corson was had also has Crohn's um and he really suffered through it in the OHL and he obviously went on to have an amazing career but he did such a selfless thing uh so at the time when when I got sick I was actually in the hospital and my parents uh, air flew me from Sault Ste. Marie to Montreal to be, you know, to be at home in the hospital and see the doctors. And it was in, uh, it was in the paper, you know, that I was in the hospital and, you know, cause I, like I said, I was the number one rated player in Quebec the year before going into the OHL draft and the Quebec league draft. So it was, it was a big story. And one day after practice, he saw, he saw the article and he just walked over to the hospital. And he came into my room, and we were all, like, I was there with my parents and my brother at the time. Like, this guy is, you know, he's, he's like, one of the best players, you know, on the, on the Canadians, and he was just an amazing player to watch. And he just came, and he sat with me. He's like, I saw your story. He's like, I wanted to come over. And that was one of the coolest moments for me that I've had, like, through hockey and meeting hockey players. And, and you know, this guy was, a, you know, he played also in the Olympics. You know, he was, he was an amazing player. And for him to just sit with me, and then I would go for breakfast with him, you know, in the summer I would call him and, you know, he would, you know, he would tell me to come out golf with him and go for lunch. And that was an amazing, amazing story. and something like that. I'll never forget.
2: You know, it's funny listening to that. I had the the privilege of doing a charity event with Shane, not too many years ago where he was a keynote and spoke very openly about breaking down the stigma associated with mental health. So I, I assume from your perspective, seeing him be this kind of ambassador today is no surprise whatsoever.
1: Yeah, literally no surprise. And like I said, for a guy to just walk over to the hospital after practice and just find my room and come and sit with me and say, if you ever need anything, he gave me his number. Um, Like it was, it was incredible. And like I said, I still speak to him, you know, here and there, like 20 years
2: later, 25 years later.
0: Are you still a Hobbs fan now? Huge.
1: Yeah. Huge, huge Habs fan. Yeah. Don't
2: think I didn't notice when you said earlier you've get, you've been able to see them win a couple of Stanley Cups. You're younger than me. I'm a Leafs fan. I've never seen them win a Stanley. Yeah.
1: Cup. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely. Definitely a huge, huge Habs fan. I actually live in Florida now. I'm married and have a kid in Florida, and I always told my wife like there's I have two non-negotiables. It's the Habs and the Buffalo Bills. Our son could be, if you want, he could be a Miami Heat, even though I like the Raptors. She's Miami. She went to the University of Miami, so she likes the Hurricanes, even though I'm a Michigan fan. But I'm like, those teams, fine. But the Canadians and Bills are non-negotiables. You know, so I'm still a huge, you know, when the Canadians went uh, last year, when they went to the Cup, uh, you know, I went to all the, as, as many games as I could. I was there when they clinched it against Vegas and won in overtime. I still have, like, the gold Caulfield T-shirts. Like, you know, I'm still, like, a huge, huge fan when it comes to the Canadians. You,
0: you talked about growing up. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. No,
2: that's okay. I was just going to say, just... Any, any chance when you're in Vegas, you'd skate or go by the, the bench or see Pete, uh, Pete DeBoer and say, hey, remember when I torched your team in junior? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it's funny because I remember after I spoke to him after the game, when I scored my 48th, 49th and 50th goal, and, and he said to me, he's like, Spot and I literally told the guys, like, I don't care what happens tonight. You do not let this guy score goals. He's like, I don't care if you slash him, if you break his hand, don't let him score any goals and ended up getting three, but yeah, I had some good, uh, I had a good rapport, good relationship with, uh, with Pete.
0: How many would you have had if they didn't have that rule? <laughs> hey, yeah. It's the only thing they're trying uh, to was, do. And you still put up a hat trick.
1: That was a pretty magical night for me.
2: That was pretty cool.
0: Um, you talked about growing up skiing and I'm assuming you were skiing at Camp Wingate where your parents actually met and awesomely who's the owner of Camp Wingate now? Me. Oh, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> full yeah, circle, so that's that's full circle, yeah, That's a really crazy story. It's, uh, it's a camp that I grew up going to as a kid. Um, you know, I, and I'll, again, another cool story from that is, is, is the previous owner, when we were kids, he would have the Canadians you know, come in and come in for the day. And at the time, we only had a rollerblade rink. And I remember Eric Desjardins, Matthew Schneider, like these guys would come up for the day and it was like the coolest thing ever you know, so now that's what I try to do, you know, for the kids that are there, Brad boys has come Carlo came, um, you know, so I try to get some NHLers to come every summer to see the kids. But yeah, it's a really cool story. I grew up going to this camp. And and my parents met there as kids, my actually my grandparents were one of the first campers to go to that camp. And after I retired from hockey, um, you know, I love kids and every everywhere, everywhere that I played, I always used to volunteer wherever it was. And, you know, it was always something that, you know, I was good at, and it was always something that I always, I always wanted to, you know, to make kids happy and especially through sport. Um, And, and now, yeah, I've owned the camp. We're going into our eighth summer and uh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing.
2: So from your experiences, Corey, what do you try to instill in these kids that come through your camp? You know, I, I think a big
1: one is sort of, and I learned that, you know, in hockey and, you know, being a part of team and, 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 you know, you hear, you hear a lot about people who are kids that are bullied and, and everything is for me is, is just including everyone. You know, you're not always going to love everyone in your cabin, just like you're not ever, you're always going to love everyone on your team, but the respect factor. And I was always someone who would include everyone. I never wanted to leave anyone out. And, you know, that's something today that when I go speak to the kids, you know, whether it's the cool kids or whatever it is, it's like, you know, it's like, You're, you know, include everyone. It's going to make you feel better and it'll make them feel better. And as you grow up, you'll understand that, you know, life is, 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 is about helping people and, and making people feel good and, and doing what you can to help sort of humanity and being a bully is just, you know, it's not cool. And that's sort of my biggest thing that I like to pass on.
0: How important was it for you that even after retirement, you stayed involved in the game?
1: Big time. Um, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, growing up, I played every sport. So I, I still play hockey here in Miami. As soon as when I moved here, I found a league. I still play once we're actually in the finals right now. I still play once a week. I coach a abandoned team here. Um, so I love everything about it, you know, and, and, you know, my son's only three weeks old, but I'm, I'm told my wife, I'm going to get him on skates as soon as I can. <laughs> um, you know, but I love, I love the game. I love sports. I love everything about it. I love what it teaches you. Um, you know, so I I definitely want to stay involved with it, you know, as long as I can. What's that men's night or men's league, like good skate. So it's actually crazy when they asked me to play, like I found this league and they're like, yeah, it's like the A league here in Florida. And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, like I knew the age range was there. You know, there, the guy told me it's mostly guys in between 20 and 30 and I'm 40 now. So, but I'm thinking to myself like, okay, I'm sure like, you know, I could still keep up and my hockey IQ is probably good enough to, you know, control the game or, and I was like get out there, and these guys are flying around, <laughs> flying around and hacking, and I'm like, holy, shit, this isn't what I signed up for. So, so our team's in the finals right now. They've never won this, so I'm gonna hope to help them win it, and then I'll probably retire and I'm gonna go over to that over 40 league. <laughs> because like I told my wife, like I, I went through my whole career with my teeth, and even though I wear a full cage now and everything, like these guys take it way too seriously, and it's like. I just, you know, I think I'm going to, I'm going to retire and head over to the other league <laughs> next year. I was I was going to if- <laughs>
0: say 15 years playing pro and you're back in a birdcage. Who would have thought?
1: <laughs> oh my, exactly. Like, so the first game I wore a half visor and that was it. I was like, I, I, I couldn't believe like these guys, like, they're, you know, you're not allowed hitting, but they would hit, you know, like they're it's the type of game where they're in front of the net and they're going to hack you and cross check you to get the, you know, the rebound. And I'm like, I don't even wear shoulder pads like i just go out there and elbow pads and helmet like i'm not getting cross checked like you know but like it's it's a really good skate i was i was actually shocked but a lot of these guys play d3 and they're younger and you know so it it's a really good skate but um but i don't think i'm good at it you just got to tell them it. no
0: no we don't do that here we
1: don't do that yeah <laughs> i said i like i'm forty guys like there you want the rebound like take it like
2: I would have thought there yeah. would have been when, when Corey Becker's uh, on the market as a free agent for this league, they'd be like, Hey, you know, i competition to get the guy who's got 50 tucks in his back. pocket." So, yeah.
1: So no, so yeah, a bunch of the teams wanted me, but like, also I'm, you know, I'm older and uh, you know, but I just, I was, it was an eye opener to see like, Hey, like how fast it is. Cause it really is. Like I played in a league in Montreal after I retired and it was like, it was okay. Uh, but you know what, when you play with a bunch of pros, that's the thing. When you pay, play with a bunch of guys who played their whole career and played every day for 20 years, like, no one's going 100 miles an hour. You know what I mean? The game's different. You know, guys are a little bit smarter with the puck, nowhere to go, nowhere to be here. Everyone's just sort of skating all over the place. So you're like, what the heck's going on? It's like, this is not what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> guys are it's, just like, the de- yeah, it's crazy. So
0: It's almost harder. I, I found oh. trying to go to men's, men's league. It was like, this is impossible
1: absolutely especially in a league like this because you're you're, you're like you have the pocket like okay a guy should be here nowhere to be found
2: you know like they just who knows so um but it's all right that's fun it sounds like a great place to be uh living these days i'd much rather be where you are than the minus 18 we've got here tonight
1: yeah yeah i speak to my family and my friends in montreal all the time and yeah being here in the winter is, has been a blessing so and we're, we get to go back in the summer for the camp so living in Florida all winter and being in Canada in the summer is a pretty good gig.
0: So I, I know we've kept you a while here and it's usually about this point where firewall tries to wrap it up. And I say that I have one more question. You always so have one more, Corey. My, my one more question <laughs> is a, a wide open one for you, whether it be St. Marie, Erie, Cincy, Manitoba, overseas, Switzerland. If, is there one player that you thought we were going to ask about or that we should ask about, about a good story and that we didn't? Oh, wow. Uh, and, is, and is it Randy Carlisle?
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had, yeah. I wasn't in Manitoba Long, but, man, I felt like his wrath. I was, I went there, and I wasn't at the time since he had all these guys, and I went there, and I, I get there, and he puts me right on the first line. I don't know. You guys remember Peter Sarno? Played in yep. Sarnia, I think. Yep. So I played with Sarno and this guy Lee Gorin, I think his name was. Good player, actually. And I'm on the first line and first game. I have like a goal and an assist, or and I'm like, all right, this is amazing. Okay. After the game, next day of practice, I'm on the fourth line. Like, I don't understand. Like, we we won. I had a goal and assist. Like, you know, and then he comes out to me, he's like, Oh, I forget that I can't swear on these podcasts, but he's just he's just giving it to me. He's like, if you want to play for me, he's like, You gotta play defense. If you don't play defense, I don't care how many goals you score, you're not playing on the top line. He's like, You're going out on the fourth. And this was like my second day with the team. I flew in, played the game. <laughs> And like, it was the next day. And like, by the end of that, by the end of that season, I was in the playoffs. I was like a healthy scratch. And, um, you know, so my time with him wasn't amazing, but obviously a guy who was another, you know, kind of like the Babcock story. It's like, I was the problem, not these guys. These guys (laughs) had had amazing NHL careers, amazing coaches, won Stanley Cups. And so looking back at it, it's like, I was, I was the issue. It wasn't them, obviously, you know? (laughs) Now, twenty years later, I can laugh about it, but uh, but yeah, he talk about an intimidating guy. He was so intimidating. Wow, like he was just really intimidating, and he had us. We had Kessler at the time, and him and Kessler would go at it. But obviously, Kessler was—you know—I wasn't Ryan Kessler, so Kessler. Um, yeah, Kessler. Uh, so they had a crazy relationship. They would just go back and forth. Uh,
2: but yeah, he was—he uh, was a tough, tough guy to play for. Well, you were a tough guy to play against and a lot of players of your era will attest to that. And I'm sure they're going to enjoy and all the fans that watch too, uh, listening to this podcast this week, really appreciate you making the time for us and, and catching up like this. It's been great. Thank you.
1: Of course. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to call, call Carlo after this, see if I can get him on.
2: Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingCoinPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company
1: podcast.